0: So here at Rooted Fellowship, we describe or define the gospel this way, and I know I'm going to say what it is, or at least what we call it here, and some of you in the room might go, mm, I feel like it's missing this. Or you might go, ah, oh, I feel like it's, uh, it needs that, or I would add this, and what about this doctrine? Um, and so this is a working definition for us here at Rooted Fellowship. It is a working definition of the gospel, and and I use this word working intentionally for two reasons. Uh, The one is that it is a work in progress. all right. it is a work in progress. I know that uh, as we continue to grow and and as God continues to reveal more to us, we might find it necessary to go, hold on, uh, we forgot this, Uh, there's grace, but we forgot this, we should add this element to the gospel because we find it incredibly important, we see it as an essential of the gospel. So it's, it's a work in progress, but then I use the word working, it's a working definition, because the definition I'm about to give you, it works. All right, it works. It's, it's, I believe it's the gospel that if you believe in it and you put your trust in it, it works. It is the very thing that brings us from darkness to light, from death to life. It works. And so here it is. I've kept you in suspense long enough. Here it is. The gospel is the perfect life Let me peel back a little bit. I forgot one element, incredibly important. The gospel is the perfect birth, the perfect birth, the perfect life, the perfect death, the perfect resurrection of Jesus Christ, affirming him as Lord and Savior. I'll give it to you again. The gospel. The gospel is the perfect birth, the perfect life, the perfect death, the perfect resurrection of Jesus Christ, affirming him as Lord and Savior and Savior. And so as we work through the text this evening, hopefully you'll you'll begin to see those elements and and how they play into the gospel, and then more importantly, the implications of them on our lives. All right, and so I'm going to read the text. It's only 11 verses, and so my hope is to get you out of here as quickly as you came in. Um, And so I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me, that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here in this very room. Hear these words of our Father. Now I would remind you, brothers, I would include sisters as well, he's talking to the church, and so now I would remind you, brothers and sisters of the gospel, I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible word. Um, We thank you that It continues to work in the individual lives of people, that it uh, meets them where they are, and then it transforms them, making them more and more like you. And so I ask that even tonight, as we look towards this weekend, that we would be reminded of the beauty and the richness of the gospel. And even for those here tonight who maybe are wrestling, uh, aren't quite there yet, haven't quite crossed the line yet, I'm asking that you would soften hearts and that you would make it plain and real, that they would see you for who you are. I pray against any distractions here tonight, and so it's to that end that I ask that you would stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May they be a sweet fragrance to you. Father, you are our King and our Redeemer. Would you have your way in this place tonight? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. So as we think about the gospel, um, particularly as we look at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, there's three things that I want to leave us with or leave you with uh, as we navigate through this text. Again, talking about the gospel, I'm going to keep saying this word gospel over and over and over again. The gospel. There's three things that the text tells us about the gospel. The first thing that we're going to see is that the gospel is historical. The gospel is historical. Historical. The second thing we'll see about the gospel is that it is timeless. The gospel is timeless. And then the third thing that Paul leaves us with is that the gospel is personal. The gospel is personal. And so I'll give you those three things again the gospel is historical, the gospel is timeless, and then the gospel is personal. What do I mean by the gospel is historical? Simply in that, uh, in a point in time, all of these things happened. That there was a point in history where we can kind of go back to and see all of these things the perfect life and the perfect death and the perfect resurrection, the perfect birth, all of this happened. And the gospel is centered around one person. The gospel is centered around Jesus Christ. It's centered around Jesus Christ. And so there is a point in history where we can go and and see the birth of Jesus. That there was a a baby boy who was born, and he had two parents, Mary and Joseph. This, This is real. There is data that confirms this. But if you've crossed the line of faith, you would understand this as the incarnation. That's what we as Christians or as the church, we call it the incarnation. It's God becoming man. God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there is a birth. I know that the text here doesn't talk about it, but it definitely implies it. Why would you say that, Anna? Well, it's hard to talk about death and not necessarily talk about a birth. And so we see the incarnation. It plays an important role, the perfect birth of Jesus. The second piece is the perfect life. Again, the text doesn't explicitly talk about the life of Jesus, but it implies it. It implies it, and in fact, if we peel back the layers, if we go back a few chapters, uh, and if you continue with us as we navigate through this series, you'll see that Paul talks about the perfect life of Jesus. That Jesus lived, he walked the earth. This is uh, one of the things that even those who don't believe in Jesus, the historians that don't believe in Jesus and, and the fact that he was the Messiah and that he, was, he saved us, they believe that there was a man named Jesus and he did walk the earth. In fact, there are some other religions that talk about him as, as a prophet. And so they're like, no, this man was legit. In history, there was a man named Jesus. But again, for us who have crossed the line of faith, we uh, extend that, we push that. We say, uh, not only did he live, but he lived the perfect life, the life that you and I could not live. He was a man without sin. A man without sin. And so we see the perfect birth and the perfect life. But where the text picks up in verse 3, we see the perfect death. I call it perfect because to save humanity, to save the world, it required a perfect sacrifice. And only Jesus, only Jesus could provide that. The perfect death, verse 3 says... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. See, Paul goes here and he says, listen, and it wasn't just a a random death. No, Jesus' death had purpose. It had purpose. It was for our sins. The text says that it was for our sins. He had no sins of his own to die for. But the wages of our sin was Jesus' death. See, his death was necessary That we might be reconciled back to God and then reconciled to one another. This is something here at Rooted we talk about over and over again. The only way that we can be reconciled to one another is that we must first be reconciled to God. And that requires a perfect death, a sinless death. Paul says that this was in accordance to the Scriptures, that this was something that had been promised and communicated since Genesis chapter 3. This is something that had been promised to the world since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve took their eyes off God and believed that they were the masters of their own lives. God steps in and He says, okay, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to reconcile you back to myself, and it's going to require the perfect death. And so, as we think about the gospel, we've got to think about this perfect death. But then Jesus was buried. Jesus was buried. Verse 4 tells us this. It's simple, it's clear that he was buried. Again, history tells us that the Roman officials treated Jesus' body like any other corpse. History tells us this. They took him off the cross. And they buried him in a tomb. History tells us this. We know that he was buried because we're told that many of his friends and family, they grieved his death. This is something that we do when we bury people. We gather and and we grieve and we mourn and we cry. We're told that this happened. But then the last piece, and this is the piece that and we should hold on to as we think about this weekend is his resurrection. Verse 4, so that he, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This communicates that a human being in history on a particular day was raised from the dead. And Paul says it again here, in accordance with the Scriptures. He's arguing that this historical nature of the Gospel, it, it hinges on the fact that Jesus Resurrected. And I know, I know the resurrection, it's a a tough thing to believe. It's a tough thing to believe, especially in our day. See, I think it would still have been a tough thing to believe back then as well. But he resurrected. See, for those who don't believe, and I'm by no means trying to make you a fool and, uh, or trying to throw punches. I know it's a tough thing to believe, but for many who do disregard the resurrection, see, they, they have to dismiss the multiple eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. They have to. They have to dismiss the multiple eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, the multitudes of people who saw Jesus after his death. And can I say this? The text doesn't say it, but if we go back to the Gospels, we see it. I think it's incredibly important for us to know that Jesus appeared to women first. He appeared to women first. Now, you might be thinking, well, why is that important? And see, in that context, and to be honest, much like today, but but more so in that context, a, a woman's account of anything was just always disregarded. It wasn't important. You would never find them in the courts because no one cared what they had to say. And so, and so Jesus appears to them. And, and think about it. Think about it for a moment, right? If you wanted to start a religion and you understood the culture in which you wanted to start this religion, to see it thrive, you wouldn't write in there that, hey, hold on. The guy that we're saying is the Messiah, he first appeared to women, and that's why this thing is legit. I mean, think about it. You, you, you'd leave that portion out. Because you're like, listen, I want this thing to grow. And so, man, we need to take out all the potholes that might exist. But they don't. They go, no, no, no. Jesus is like, I'm going to first appear to women. And you're going to write that in the scriptures. And I'm going to use that to bring people closer to me. But in verse 6, we're told about the other eyewitnesses. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some had died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is Paul. I'm trying to make the point here that the gospel, the gospel is historical. Historical. That, yes, I know that there are parts that, that require faith, a supernatural faith, something that comes from God, but, but there's a lot of it that's historical. And so maybe even as you enter this weekend and you're going to be seated around a table with friends and family who don't believe in the gospel, you can start there and go, but hold on, there's some historical facts to this. I know you're wrestling with the supernatural stuff, but let's, let's take a step back. There's some historical facts to this. There was a man named Jesus, and he lived, he walked the earth, and he died, he resurrected. And this changes everything. It changes everything. In fact, I'd go as far as to say it has massive implications on our lives. But we'll get to those in a moment. The second thing that Paul shows us, not only is the gospel historical, but the gospel is timeless. The gospel is timeless. Let's go back to verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, this gospel is preached. This gospel is communicated. That's the first thing Paul says here: is that Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. See, for many of us, we we tend to think people will believe if I just kind of walk into the office, if I walk into my neighborhood, if I walk into the gym and and just, just lift weights, they'll look at me, and by the way I'm lifting those weights, they'll be like, there must be a God. How do I give my life to Jesus? I know for some in the room, seeing you lift weights will definitely make me believe in God more. But this gospel has to be communicated. It has to be preached. And so Paul says, remember, remember this gospel that I preached to you, which you received. Which you received. This speaks of a response in the past tense. This was communicated to you and and by the supernatural work of God. He softened your heart and you received it. You received the gospel. The invitation to come to God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That salvation, salvation is a miracle that happened at a specific moment in your life. You received it. But Paul goes on. Not only did you receive it, but he says it's in which you stand. In which you stand. Indicating the, the present stability that we have in the gospel. So there's this, this past tense receiving, but now we stand in it. And we're stable in it. We're firm in it. We are rooted in it. Speaks of present stability. This Romans 5 verse 2 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into This grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So because we stand in it, it allows us to rejoice in the hope that we have in God. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast unswervingly or tightly to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. We can do all of this because we stand in the gospel. The reason we can hold on to hope is because we stand in the gospel. We're firm in it. But then, Scripture tells us that we are to to hold on, to be firm. See, for many of us, we we stand, but we're not firm. For many of us, we stand, but we're we're not holding on, like Hebrews 10.23 talks about. See, for many of us, we are like the black jacket, black backpack man on the how train. Any of you take the how train? No? One? When I was working in Santon, I would see this man quite regularly. In fact, I think there, there was a group of them because they looked different, but they would always have a black jacket and a black backpack on. And so I would get onto the train at Santon worst place to get onto the how train on um, after work because they've already picked up people from Park and Rosebank, and so you're left standing so I would get on and, and man I'd hold on and just kind of wait for the doors to close and, and at the death the man in the black jacket and the black backpack would jump in and then he would just stand and, and I would think to myself I'm like bro you know you know this thing is going to like start in a moment. But doesn't hold on to anything. He just, he just stands. And you guys know how the story ends. The heart train begins and then he's on some, and then he acts like no one saw that. <laughs> Have you seen people that do that? It's the craziest thing. It's like, no, I'm just going to continue to look forward. No one saw what happened. I'm like, everyone saw it. Like you almost bailed. But still, he doesn't hold on. He's like, nope, I'm going to stay here. And then we stop at the next stop and it's like, whoa. I'm like, brother, please hold on to something. The doors close. And again, it's like, see, for some of us, we stand in the gospel, but we're we're not holding on. We're not holding on. And so and so when when life wants to throw you around a little bit, yes, you're in the gospel, but you find yourself, you find yourself almost falling. Because you're not holding on when when that beautiful lady walks past you. Brothers, you know what I'm talking about. And you know you shouldn't be looking. And you find yourself turning and you find yourself turning and you find yourself turning and you find, like, what? because you're not holding on. That's why I find it funny when people go, Yeah, I, I fell, I fell into sin. I slipped and tripped. It's like, how, how does that happen? No one falls into sin. Let me me put it out now. No one falls into sin. It's because we're not holding on. We're standing, but we're not holding on. Because if you're holding on to the gospel, your hope is in the gospel, not in the success, not in the fulfillment of this world, not in relationships. You're holding on to the gospel. Paul says that we stand in it. But then he says this, verse 2, and by which you are being saved. By which you are being saved. Now, if you've navigated in the scriptures a little bit, you should find that somewhat confusing. Because you should go, wait, hold on, what do you mean being saved? I thought once saved, you're saved. What, What, Paul, what is this being saved? This is confusing. Are you contradicting yourself, Paul? See, to understand what Paul is talking about, we must continue to read on. Yes, you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. If you hold fast to the word, hold fast to the word that I preached to you. So so this being saved isn't necessarily talking about our positional standing, uh, what some theologians would say. It's not talking about our justification in the gospel. This word justification simply means that once you come to Jesus, once you cross the line of faith, you are justified. God sees you just as if you've never sinned. He sees you perfect because he sees Jesus and you are in him. But this being saved talks about the the progressiveness of our salvation. Again, what the the great theologians would say, sanctification. This word sanctification simply means to be set apart. That when you come to Jesus, you are made perfect, holy, but you need to grow in that holiness. That you need to be made more and more like Jesus. How do I know that this is necessary? Because I know many of you still sin. In fact, delete that. I know all of you still sin. That many of you will walk out of here and get into a fight with your spouse. And you know that you're wrong, but you'll do it anyway. Many of you will wake up tomorrow morning and think about trying to cheat the system in some shape or form. You know this. I know this about you. Look, guys, I know myself. I am in desperate need of a savior but I'm saved, I'm justified. God sees me as perfect. But there's a progressive nature of our gospel, which is called sanctification, that he is making me more holy and holy and holy. He is making me more like Christ. And he will do this until Christ returns. And so we can hold fast to the word. We can believe in the word. We can trust in the word until Jesus returns and makes all things new. This speaks of a future reality, a future reality. I hold on, I persevere till the end, that Jesus will come and make all things new again. And so there's a past reality of the gospel that you received it. There was a, a point in your life where you received it. Some of you can tell stories of it. You know the exact time and the exact moment when you gave your life to Jesus. It's a past reality, but then there's a present reality that we stand in the gospel. We live in the gospel. And then there's a future reality. Do you know why some of us can navigate through the difficult times like ones we're experiencing right now in our country? There's a, a reason that we can continue putting our hope in Jesus because there's a future reality that the gospel gives us. If you hold on, if you hold fast as Paul Says. And then he ends by saying, Unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. He's referring to the hopelessness of our faith apart from Christ's resurrection. That apart from Jesus' resurrection, then we have no hope. We have no hope. In fact, Paul later goes on to say this in verse 17. We're not going to get there tonight, but he says this in verse 17 of the same chapter. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then guys, we should just go out and continue to do whatever it is that we want to do. If Christ has not resurrected, then this is a waste. Yet yeah, we gathered, we had some food, it was fun, got to see my friends. But we should just continue with our lives. But that is not the case for those who put their faith in Jesus. This gospel is not only historical, But it is timeless. It is timeless. The last thing that Paul shows us is that this gospel is personal. This gospel is personal. Paul could easily use someone in the church as an illustration to how the gospel changes everything. He, He could point to someone in the neighborhood and go, hey, remember that guy? Remember that lady? Remember how they used to live? But now that Jesus has transformed their lives, look at them now. But he doesn't. He, he uses himself as an illustration. He uses himself as an illustration to show you that this gospel is personal. Not only is for people out there, but it's for you as well. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He, he kind of gives you uh, a, an intro to his testimony. He says, guys, this is who I used to be. Stop thinking about the person out there or, or your colleague who sits in the corner cubicle, who is the worst person in the world, your boss. No, no, he says, look, look, at me. I used to persecute the church. I was that guy that was out there killing Christians. But his grace was sufficient for me. His grace was sufficient for For me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. I am the least of of the people in here, unworthy to be called whatever role it is that I play in your life, whether it's a pastor or a shepherd or a friend or a brother. Because I could share my own testimony, I could tell you my story, but his grace was sufficient for me. And that's why, friends, your testimony is the greatest sermon people will ever hear. Your testimony is the greatest sermon people will ever hear because because it makes the gospel personal. It's not some theological term that's out there. It's not some really cool doctrine. It's not this thing that we gather together and, and debate about. No, no, you can tell people, hey, remember me. Remember me. Hopeless, desperate, a sinner, always thinking about myself and no one else. His grace was sufficient for me. So Paul says this is personal, but he goes on, verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am. I stand here because of the grace of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, and I love this, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I love that about Paul. He says, guys, I grafted. I worked. I was out there being faithful to the great commission and the great commandment, the planting of churches and the establishing of the local church, shepherding and counseling and loving. I mean, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he calls himself the, the master builder, the skilled master builder. Not puffing himself up saying, listen, God has wired me a particular way. He has wired you a particular way. Some of y'all are phenomenal at what you do. You are. You are phenomenal at what you do and you will continue to be. Companies are going to seek you out. But remember this. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Again, reminding the church that it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. It's the gospel that saves. The richness of his mercy. The breadth and depth of his love. That I did not pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It's grace and grace alone. He makes the gospel personal. And then he wraps up, and I'll land the plane here, verse 11 whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. And so we preach, we share, we communicate through word and deed, through proclaiming the good news, but then living it as well, standing in it, holding on to it, that those who are in desperate need of a Savior would look and say, there's something different about this community. There's something different about this group of individuals in a time like this, when everyone is booking tickets to leave and sending money elsewhere and figuring out what they're going to do with their investments. We go, His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. This gospel is personal. It's not something we read in a book about those who've gone before us. It's something that we talk about because we are experiencing it right here tonight. And so we preach it, and we plead with God to do a supernatural work so that they might believe. And so friends, as as we wrap up tonight and as we look to the weekend, remember this. This gospel is historical, that this happened, this is real, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a myth, it happened. This gospel is timeless. It'll impact every season, every phase, every area of your life. And that this gospel is personal. This gospel is for you. Jesus died for you. He died for you. We're forgetful people. I think of myself, I I find it easy to believe the gospel for someone else. It's easy to believe the gospel for you. Oh, you're in need of the gospel. Let me pray for you. Let me journey with you. Let me walk with you. Let me talk to you. It's easy to believe the gospel for someone else. And I fail to remember that this gospel is for me. It's personal. And so one of the ways that we remember together is in the practicing of the sacraments. We did it a couple weeks ago when we baptized a few folk. Listening to the testimonies personal testimonies of what Jesus has done, that His grace was sufficient. But the other sacrament is communion. We partake in communion together to remember. That's how Paul starts this chapter, by saying, church, remember. And so when we take communion, it's to remember. To remember the sacrifice that has been made for us. And so in a few moments, we're going to do that. I'm going to pray for us, and and as you feel led and as you feel comfortable, I want you to get up, and um, there's bread at the back, and there's wine and juice at the back. Um, Nothing magical about those things. They're just elements, but it's what they point us to. It's what they point us to, and so I want you to pause for a moment. There'll be some music in the background. Pause for a moment and think about where you are now, but also think about the weekend, where you're heading to. I know some of y'all are going to some difficult places, Some of y'all are going to places where they might not know that you're a Christian because you know they'll laugh at you, they'll ridicule you. Pause for a moment. Meet with our Father. Engage with Him. He will meet you where you are. doesn't need you to sort out your life. He knows it's messed up. He will meet you where you are and then just confess to Him and say, Lord, I'm in desperate need of you. I'm in desperate need of you. This week I've been running around. It's been a short week and I know how it is. for You highly competent, highly educated people. Got to get so much done in such a limited amount of time. And it's in those moments that we forget that we are not sovereign, that we are not in control, and that we are in desperate need of a Savior. So pause for a moment. Breathe. And call out to Him. And for some of you, tonight, maybe you're going, I don't believe this stuff. I don't know where I am. There's an opportunity for you tonight to meet with him. The invitation is extended to you. It's extended to everyone. And all we are to do is to receive, as Paul says, to receive so that we might stand. And when we stand, we will persevere to the end. And so on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took the bread and lifted it up and gave thanks to it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, lifted it up and gave thanks and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. He was about to shed his own blood so that we might be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. So I'm going to pray, play some music, and as you feel comfortable, please partake in communion. And I'll come up again and we'll pray and then we'll respond in a few songs. And so Father, we come now thankful, thankful that you are still at work, that you look to a broken world and you are not pacing back And forth like many of us wondering what on earth happened you're not trying to figure out a plan B see plan A was always Jesus you knew before beginning of creation you knew you were going to send your son Jesus to come and die for us and the implication of that truth is powerful Because for those who have crossed the line of faith, it means that you had us in mind before the world was created. You know us by name. You know our our deepest, darkest secrets, the things that we would never share with those close to us out of fear of what they might think of us. You know all those things. And yet you still extend your arm of grace towards us. And so in many ways, we are like the son who had squandered everything. And after sitting in a pool of mud, after reflecting for a moment, realize that my father, my father has everything. And that he loves, he loves. It is a joy for you to extend it to us, those who are your children. And so as we partake now in communion, I pray that that would be true for every single person here. Whatever dark secrets we're holding on to, we know that, Lord, you forgive those, that your blood covers those, that there's nothing that we can do that will separate us from your love, and that there's nothing that can be done to us that will separate us from your love. And so, Lord, I, I ask, soften hearts, Some are angry, some are bitter, some filled with rage, and a lot of it directed towards you. Father, help us see that we have distorted our view of you. Instead of seeing you as father, we see you as a master, and that we are just your slaves, but rather we are children who have a seat at the table. So forgive us. Father, we love you. We praise you in your beautiful name. Amen.